Sourcing for Innovation podcast. We're now at episode seven. Joining me again, Catalyte CEO Jacob Shu. Good morning. Hi, good morning, Adam. Good Thanks. to have you back on here again. Today we're going to talk about a, a subject which might sound a little bit odd at first, but we're going to explain it and it's going to make perfect sense in a few minutes. We're going to talk about farm-to-table software development. Now, this is a term you've been using a lot sort of to describe the process by which Catalyte finds, trains, employees, our own employees, and the better outcomes that result from that. So that's that's the, the general idea. Can you give us a little bit more detail here, and then we'll really get into some specifics in a few minutes. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I wish I could have come up with a better term for it, but it seems to be the, the closest analogy we can think of. It's similar to the restaurant industry. You have a better idea of what you're getting because it's local, right? You can trace back to where that egg came from and how that actually became an omelet for you. And a similar concept with software development, right, is that we've spent probably the last two decades now trying to build models that are distributing work all over the world. Well, just like this farm-to-table analogy, you create a lot of performance and speed and just collaboration uh, roadblocks when you do that, right? It just actually makes the process harder. When you actually have teams that are sitting side-by-side -side with you and you have a shared context that you can actually constant, that you're much better at being able to adapt and, and actually get a lot of the real benefits that people talk about with Agile. So on the culinary side, you have connection if you are the, the restaurateur with your providers, meaning sort of the farmers, the growers, the people you are, you're working with. And you have obviously a direct connection with your end users or the people who are eating at your restaurant. Take that over into software development, the restaurateur is the client. You now have very close interactions with your providers, meaning catalytes or whoever else you're working with with software development, who can help you be more nimble, more agile in either uh, changing your strategy based on new technologies which are coming out, or on changing habits or changing expectations from your end users, the people who are using your software, Absolutely. correct? That's right, that's but, right. I mean, I think a lot of that, in terms of the benefits of having that close relationship um, in this kind of farm to table model comes down to really three things. It's really about performance, efficiency, and really the richness of, of collaboration, right? So on the performance side, why, are you, why would you get better performance by, um, by using this model? Number, the first is, you know, it's a shared context, right? And in today's world of software development, it's much more important that you actually have a deep understanding of what your users want and you're able to adapt and continuously change in real time. Uh, so by being sort of very, by being close together and being sort of side by side, you have a much better ability to really adapt and actually make that process more co-creative, right? So instead of a team it being a one-directional type of uh, uh, approach, you know, teams can add, you know the, the the teams that you have with you can actually contribute and actually bring new ideas and and be a co-creative partner. Um, you can really just jam together. Right? Yeah, it's it's kind of breaking down the walls. You have lots of different walls. You should be just you literally. You take something from in-house and you throw it to, you know, out of house or, yes. you know, offshore or maybe the time zone difference has an effect. You know, you're a product owner and you're up at midnight trying to solve bugs dealing <laughs> with someone in Estonia or China or Absolutely. wherever else. If you have the people located right there, as you said, like just conversations that happen at lunch or if you're coming in and out of the building or, hey, I thought of this last night. Let's take five minutes and work through it. See if it works. See if it doesn't. You don't have to have a whole process behind that. That's exactly right. I mean, how many times have you, you know, how many people have actually been on conference calls that they really felt were worthwhile or that were really that engaging? I don't see anyone in the room here raising <laughs> their hand. 
yeah, and you know, so you that really goes to that second benefit of this kind of model is that you end up with a much more efficient uh, pro, uh, process, right? Because you eliminate a lot of the overhead. You eliminate first the overhead of having fixed communication protocols, right? So typically, companies that are distributing work never realize, you know, how much structure you actually have to put in place to manage that process, right? So you know, set conference calls, set uh, you know, set times that you have to actually communicate over uh, uh, different types of platforms to do that. Versus when you're really kind of sitting side by side, it becomes more of a continuous integration. It becomes more of a sync. Right. And, and of course, as you mentioned earlier, Adam, I mean, a big part of it is when you're distributing work overseas, then, you know, people have to be on weird odd hour conference calls. Right. And we all know how engaging those calls are. Right. I mean, how many people are probably, you know, checking their email on that or how many people really on that call are, 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 are contributing. Right. So, you know, you just lose a lot of that richness and you lose a lot of that flexibility in how you can actually communicate and get ideas across. It's, it's interesting, too, if you think about it in sort of the, the larger scope of agile methodologies and how people uh, adapt them to their own uh, individual needs. So a lot of them have fairly rigid rituals that you, you need to follow. And that might fit in well with this sort of distributed model. All right. We have this time carved out each day for this conference call and we're on Skype for 15 minutes at this point in time for stand-ups for things that maybe are a little bit more fluid this model definitely helps that so you know it's good to have a set time for your stand-up but if some work needs to get done during that morning time period that's where your stand-up is saying hey guys can we have 15 minutes at one o'clock rather than having to reschedule everything makes you more productive, even though it seems like it might be a little bit more chaotic. Absolutely. And, you know, don't forget also that there is a lot of management overhead that gets added to that process to, and to some extent, it's to serve that rigidity, right? To, it's, it's actually meant to create that structure so you can create a little bit more predictability at these teams. So, you know, typically, if you look at distributed teams, they end up being bigger than teams that you actually sit side by side with because you need, you know, now you need to add some formal leads on the project. You need to add some project managers. You need program managers. Many big companies will start adding things like, you know, client partners and things like that. And so you end up with almost like a telephone chain, right? And you need to make any kind of a decision on something is going through many layers of management, even for just one team. So, you know, that's again, why you end up with a much more efficient model. Why typically what we've seen is that, you know, teams that are kind of in, that are kind of side by side and who are kind of in in the same community as you, you know, end up, you know, you end up with smaller teams that are faster and can get things done faster. Talk also about the collaboration on that sort of, um, I guess, three uh, person or three entity model. So again, you have your suppliers, your people who are you know, helping you do the, the work, you have yourself, the client, and you have the end users. Talk about how this model really helps that, especially if you're doing it at sort of a, a hyper-local level. So literally sitting across a table or in the same building or at least in the same you know, community or metro area as your client and as your users. Absolutely, well, and that really goes to what I would consider the third real benefit of this kind of a model is that there's just a much much more richness in that in that relationship that you're building amongst those three parties, right? Because first, you know, you guys are are having that shared context. You guys are really understanding uh, what each other's needs are. Conceivably, you know, when you're talking about potentially being a client and and the developers on you know working on the team, you know, you actually have a much more rich uh, relationship as well. Simply because you guys are neighbors. Your kids maybe go to the same schools together. You might go to the same church together on weekends. Um, you know, so you're you're really kind of being able to 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 work with people who kind of really understand sort of where you're coming from. And at the end of the day, I mean, that's one of the really 
big um, kind of macro benefits of a, of a model like this, where we're kind of really trying to create a uh, almost a circular economy at a micro level, um, at a community level, let's say, is that you know when you're all working together, you're actually reinvesting into your own community, right? So when your client, you know, when the client is working with us, you know, really all that sort of investment is going back to the same place that they all where they all reside. So you have a essentially a model where um, you know as we sort of uh, employ developers and you pay taxes, it all goes back to your home community versus going to the community in some other side of the world. I think that ties in really nicely again with this um, culinary analogy. You know, you always hear buy local or, you know, support local. And the same idea, if you're buying from local farmers, you are investing those tax dollars, you know, directly into the community. They are then taking that money, investing it into their community, building up their own infrastructure, employing more people in the area in which you you know, you live in. So you create, as you said, that circular economy, which I guess then begs the question, why aren't more companies doing this currently if this all, you know, sort of makes sense and has all these benefits? Well, I think that the excuse that you hear about and, you know, questionable whether it's excuse or if it's real is that people can't find talent they need at a local level. Well, the reality is that, you know, people are having a hard time finding developers anywhere in the world. Forget about local level, right? So I think it really comes down to this ability for companies to really think, you know, to really prioritize the proximity of where those developers are over things like arbitrary things like what university you went to or what, you know, what, what do you have on your CV? Um, you know, I think over the years also, you know, even when it comes, you know, a lot has been made about uh, the gig economy, right? But I think also the same similar dynamics have actually been happening amongst professional workers and, you know, white collar workers is that we've moved to almost a just in time type of a recruiting model, right? So what ends up happening is if a person has a very specific skill set that can solve a very specific problem, most companies are vastly overpaying for that talent. At the same time, they're not investing in people who actually can can meet you know the needs over a longer period of time, right? So it's kind of moved to this model where it's almost uh, you know people come and go at a very at a very fast pace in these companies. And and again, I think that's where we're trying to kind of change that whole dynamic, right? Is that when you're doing this at a local level, you know the you know the teams get stronger over time, right? Because they have a deeper understanding and they're building a deeper and tighter connections again with that shared context over time. So you end up with a much more higher performing, more efficient team. You know, it's always hard to get something started on this. I think once you get going, once you, you have more people buying into this model, there was just a, uh, an article in an interview I, I read on, I think it was Marketplace, but IBM, who's, who's looking into this sort of thing too, they realized that there was such a skills gap between the number of people that both they and sort of the industry at large needs and the number of people who are coming out of college with CS degrees. Uh, the numbers, I, I might fudge a little bit here, but something like 500,000 positions need to be filled and 25,000 25, people coming out every year. You do the math, it's going to take a long time for those numbers to catch up. So they're starting to see the benefits now of this sort of non-traditional recruitment, as you said. And if you're able to do that at the local level, that ties in sort of both of these um, social good and good for your company, good for the industry, good for your clients. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, the final question here, I, I think we, we talked about it a little bit, want to re revisit is, really, how do you take consumer preference or consumer expectations into this? Again, I'm going to go back to the culinary analogy. Like, if your ingredients change, meaning new iPhone comes out or, you know, new OS comes out, how do you then update your software using these these locally sourced people to keep 
expectations the same. Just as a restaurant has to keep that menu top of notch so people keep coming back, how do you use this local sourcing of technology talent to keep your clients, your end users happy? That's a great question. I mean, I think if you look at what makes Agile and some of these uh, kind of iterative processes so powerful is that you know you're really creating learning loops, right? So the end of one, the end of one sort of release is the beginning of the next one, right? So uh, you know, so and, and most of the times you, you know taking a product view of things versus a project view, you know there is no perfect end state, right? You're constantly sort of you're constantly adapting it, and you're constantly adapting it based on what real users are giving you feedback, right? So it's based on data and it's based on 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 really understanding what users uh, uh, want, right? So uh, one of the great one, one of the reasons why this kind of a hyper local model works so well is again it, the teams that you know the, whether you're a client or you're a, or, or you're sort of a de development partner. Um, you, you guys really have a shared understanding of what that use, what your user base needs, right? And again, that understanding grows over time. You want teams that have that shared understanding and and can actually contribute that to that understanding with you. And again, that just works so much better at a, at, at this hyper local uh, level. Yeah, you can you can absorb things just from your daily lives. For example, you know, in the United States, obviously healthcare is very dispersed with different you know companies having control over different regions, different states. So. If you are living in New York and doing work on a company that's say in like the Northwest, you're not gonna have that daily interaction with people who are using that actual software. Whereas if you live in that area, you might be using it, your neighbors might be using it. They can just give you feedback like, hey, don't you work for such and such company? Like, here's what's wrong with that. Or, exactly. Here's what I think you can fix. And you can put that right back into the work. Yes. And again, you don't have to put a lot of structure around that, right? It really becomes a kind of a natural continuous synchronization kind of process versus something you have to structure and try to create that kind of an interaction. Yeah, you can do the feedback loop as well as people sort of, you know, ramp up or ramp down off of projects that people are there to transfer the knowledge rather than, again, having to spend the time, the energy, the effort to create these massive, you know, sort of transfer of knowledge reports. Just talk to someone for a few minutes, you know, document as you go along, but the, the process doesn't have to be as tightened up or as extreme. Exactly. Again, it goes back to these learning loops, right? Teams that can learn together over time are going to always vastly outperform teams that, even if you have a team of, of the, the, the most hardcore technical sort of experts, teams that actually can learn together over time and have that shared context, shared goals and expectations around the shared outcomes are always going to outperform these, uh, the, these teams of, uh, of, of sort of hardcore you know, tech rock stars. Now, we're, we're recording this right around lunchtime, so let's talk about Farm the Table is making me hungry. So before I go get a little bit of food, is there anything else for here that we missed today that we should, you know, sort of cover on this topic? Um, you know, the, maybe the one final point I'll just make, right, is that there probably sometimes has been this tendency towards maybe a little bit empire building over time, um, especially when you look at companies that have been using a lot of offshore teams, you end up having very large teams, right? And I think just as, a, as again, going back to that earlier point, I think that when you have these hyper-local teams, you end up with a much more, uh, a higher performance, a much more efficient model. A project that might take, you know, 10, 10 people overseas for two months, you know, might take, you know, only half as many people at, at a local level and actually might be able to deliver, you know, even 30% faster. So I think it, it really comes down to, again, total cost of ownership and driving a model that teams can actually learn together and, and, and drive longer term sort of performance and efficiency. Farm to table, software development. Next time you go to your local farmer's market, think about the connection between that fruit you're buying and the app you're using to pay for it. 
Jacob Hsu, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Adam.